what a summer it has been through First Peter. Allow me one announcement at, an, at a weird time, but I wanted kids to be in here for this. We have a big announcement in kids' ministry. On September 26th, we are adding a new class, a fourth and fifth grade class. We're excited for it. We are. I love it. I love it. I'm super thankful for Pastor Kyle and all the work that he has done this, this summer to make that happen. So super thankful for you, brother. And I know he's teaching one of the classes, but this is important. If you are interested in teaching any one of the classes, we now have classes from uh, preschool all the way to fifth grade in individual classes. And as we separate them out, we want to do a volunteer and teacher meeting. And so the week before September 19th, uh, we want to make sure that we're on the same page. Pastor Kyle's going to lead a meeting right after church. Uh, lunch will be provided. So you can know that I'll be there. Okay? And so come join me as we hear about what's going on in kids' ministry. With that being said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the preschoolers up to kindergarten. You can head on back with Miss Suzanne. With Miss Suzanne. There you go. And then our elementary class, first through fifth grade, you go ahead, you enjoy the time together because you are about to multiply. And I want to highlight, as you walk out, you are going to see a registration table. Our community groups are starting up in two weeks. And so we've got information about our four community groups that meet. This is how we live out authentic community. It's not Sunday morning alone. We need discipleship groups. We need community groups where we can meet and talk about where we are spiritually, how we can grow in what we call gospel fluency, our ability to not just, uh, not just to share a positive word with somebody, uh, not just a way to share worldly advice. You know, you need to budget better. Um, you just need to grow in your relationships better. But gospel relationships that allow us to be able to speak the good news about Jesus, his grace, his hope, in ways that we can even confess sin. And community groups is a way that we do that. Three things happen at community groups. A meal. A meal. Yes, more food. A meal where we get to fellowship and do life on life. And then secondly, it's a time of opening God's word and not just discussing what does it mean and interpreting it, though we do that work on Sunday mornings, but we continue that work into community groups towards application. How does this look in our life? That we're growing by grace instead of trying to prove ourselves or defend ourselves or for the sake of revenge, but because God's loved us and poured out his favor to us. So those community groups, those three things, and then prayer, and then prayer, the third thing. There's information on the table out there. I'd encourage you, take a look at the four groups that are meeting. I'm excited for them. I got to be a part of one group that was meeting last week, just preparing. And one thing that I, I loved hearing was just a group that just feels like they're connected and they're thinking, who do we need to invite to be a part of this group? And so that's happening right now. But you can see the information because you're probably being invited to these groups. You can see the information out on the table and see which groups are meeting, where and when that you could be a part of. All right, go ahead. Open up to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 
I guess I'm missing one thing. <laughs> so I'm looking at my notes. I'm so sorry. We voted last week as a congregation to do renovations to the coop. A part of adding that fourth and fifth grade class and something I just forgot was that we are starting to contribute money above and beyond a regular giving. Our initial goal is $25,000. It's open. All you have to do is write a check and put in the memo, capital, building, or coop, <laughs> which is what this building out here used to be. And, and we want some classroom space. And so I just encourage you to begin giving. You're going to hear more about that. But if you wanted to give this week, feel free to give towards that. As we talked about kids, there's a question that's often asked, does this church have a future? In fact, it is asked. Maybe it's being asked. People have voiced it to me. And it's a question of, of, do I as a Christian have a future? And is it good? Maybe you think about that with your family. Maybe you've thought about your job and, and things have gotten harder and you're wondering, uh, how's my time at this company going to end? And when will it? And would it be sooner than I'd hoped or wanted? Maybe you've thought that. You need to know that the people of God have asked that question. They've had that thought. It's at the beginning of the prophet Isaiah that God speaks to his people. And, and he gives a picture of something that looks like it has no future. You see, there isn't a king over Israel. There's nobody reigning in Jerusalem. That was a big problem. I mean, can you imagine us as a country not having a president for a number of years or even decades? Well, these people are in exile. What are we talking about in Peter? Journeying with God through exile. They felt hopeless as they were in their exile. And so through the prophet Isaiah, God says, the dynasty of David is essentially a family tree that has been chopped down to a stump. A stump's not very glorious. It's not very motivating. In fact, um, don't look too closely in my backyard because... Uh, I've got a number of stumps that have yet to come out. I just don't want to take them out. It's just hard work, but there's no longer a beautiful tree that's there. You see, it's the kind of picture that takes the wind out of your sails. And as the people are asking, the people of God, Israel, in the Old Testament, in exile, asking, do we have a future? God sends this picture of a stump. And then he gives a promise of hope that a shoot, a shoot from that stump is going to grow. And it is going to grow into such a glorious tree that people are going to forget about the old tree. And out of this stump, this new shoot is going to produce fruit, is going to give hope to God's people. And you and I have the advantage on this side of Christ to know that, that even though David's family tree and David's kingdom was in shambles, that the true king, Jesus, was coming, and he was going to do far more than anything that the people expected. Jesus is the shoot that God promised his people in Isaiah 11 of his grace. 
Does God's people have a future? Absolutely they do. Anywhere and everywhere. Afghanistan and here. Calvary Highlands Ranch and Calvary Hot Sulphur Springs and Calvary Summit View. You have a future. But what do we think about when we think about the future of our church? Consider that. Do people typically think of? We're going to lean in to the very end. First Peter, and it's sad to me that we're bringing this to a close. But as we do that, we are going to look at the bright future that God promises his people, even when they walk through suffering and hardship, tough times, when things don't go as they plan. Two things that Peter brought up, that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking to devour these Christians all over the Roman Empire. Secondly, that Peter expects that they are going to walk through harder trials. He calls them fiery trials. That's serious. But do they have a future? Yes. And that's what 1 Peter is about. Look with me at verse 12, chapter 5, by Silvanus. Now, Silvanus is, is a character that that uh, if you've read the book of Acts, you know it's Silas. Silas and Silvanus are one in the same. And what is, what is said about Silas? Well, in Acts, we know this, that, that he, uh, he spends a night in jail, that he partook in gospel ministry with Peter and Paul, that he endured suffering. He was a part of evangelism and planting churches right at the very beginning, right after Jesus' ascension. That Silas was a key player in the New Testament church. But here we are, as Peter writes, 30 some odd years after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And how is he being used right here? He's a letter carrier. That's what this means. Some people wonder, does it mean that Silas actually wrote this letter? No, it's not it. Silas is the brother who's going to deliver and carry this letter to Christians and to the church all over the place, all over Turkey in particular. Now, what's so important about this, it's not just that, that Silas is, is trustworthy and faithful to carry a letter with him. He's not going to drop it, you know. He's not a four-year-old, you know, that's going to set the letter down. And, oh, no, all of a sudden the New Testament church is without this hope of First Peter. It's this. It's that Silas knows the mind of Peter. And so as he brings this letter and reads this letter, the advantage that the church has is this, that Silas is there in the flesh. And when the church and Christians are saying, should we be afraid because of this suffering that's coming, that Silas can be there and say, no, that we're to remember our hope in Christ and that no one can take us out of God's hands. Keep entrusting yourselves to him. That Silas is there. He knows the mind of Peter. He can help them interpret this letter. But secondly, and this is what's explicit in the text, that Silas is called faithful. You see that word? By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard, I have written briefly to you. Peter has great expectations of Silas's ministry. Maybe as much as Peter's letter will encourage these churches, 
Silas is there in the flesh. And what's the one word that's said about him? What, what is all that Peter needs to say to garner that trust? It's faithfulness. Faithfulness. What is faithfulness here? Faithfulness is the credibility to be believed. That someone's words and actions have such a track record in love for building up God's people that we are compelled to believe them. We're compelled to believe them. You know those people. Some of them are in your community groups. Some of them have invited you to their community group. They're a part of this church. They're leading ministries. They're investing in your kids. They're reaching out to you during the week. Their ministry that you see, they want to build you up. That they don't just want their way, but they want to see you maturing and growing and taking steps with Jesus. That that's their vision for you. I want you to think about who in your life demonstrates faithfulness. This is a big deal to Peter. And here's his word. If they demonstrate faithfulness to you, listen to them. And if they do not demonstrate faithfulness, then do not listen to them. Do not listen to them. Right here, that's his commendation of Silas. I think about my, my uncle. I have an uncle who's visited here. You've joined in uh, ministry with my wife and I in loving him and representing Jesus. But before I was born, my uncle, who's not a Christian, had some experiences with Christians in community, and he left with an evaluation that Christians are not faithful, but actually hypocritical. And so in talking with him about the gospel, his big, his big stumbling block is this. I can't trust Jesus. I can't follow him because I've seen Christians be hypocrites. Now, here's the truth, and here's the point, is that, is that my uncle has misapplied something, right? He's crossed some wires. There are some Christians at some time, somewhere in his life that didn't act with integrity to Jesus. That's what you experienced. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is not faithful. Does that make sense? It means that you should listen to those people. You should run from them. Get away. But not every Christian is that way, and some have built your trust you living on mission, you are building trust with people. You are investing in people that don't know Jesus. You are gaining credibility to represent Jesus in his true faithfulness. And I love that, and I praise God for that. It's what 2 Timothy 2.13 gets at. Though, though at times we're unfaithful, God is never, he's never unfaithful. He's always true to who he says he is. Some of you, you have been around for over 50 years now. You have represented Jesus in different ways throughout, throughout the history of this community. You have been here. I've seen the pictures about when they held their first service in, in these roads right here, Arapahoe Road, this main thoroughfare was a dirt road. And you started, and if you've been here two seconds, I want to let you know, you're a part of this church's history. And this church's history is this, been around a long time and been faithful to Jesus. I remember those words five years ago, five years ago today. What did this church want? Two things. 
Two things we want. Number one, we want a worship service that happens here. We want a worship service because we want to faithfully represent Jesus. We want to serve him, worship him right here. We don't want to lose this ground. And then secondly, we want to love and make disciples of students. May God give us opportunity for that. What is it? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. It doesn't always look like amazing popularity or incredible growth. Sometimes it feels like a grind, but may it always be true of you, some of you, that you're being faithful to what God wants because that is amazing and awesome. Okay, this is a one-point message. You got a few characters, but there's a one-point message, and here it is. Some of you, how are you going to endure in faithfulness for the next 50 years? That's a long time, right? Like, who can say, this is where I'll be, what I'll be doing in 50 years? I, I don't. But how are you and I going to work towards faithfulness for the next 50 years as a church? And it's this, number one, root yourselves in grace. Number one and only number one, root yourselves in grace. It's a part of the context of what Peter has just said but this is what he says, that I have taught you, literally commanded you. I'm going to use the word encourage. Encourage. And I have testified. So Peter is encouraging them to live into the true grace of Jesus. And he is testifying about that grace. About that grace. Now, now here's the question. Does Peter have credibility as well? And he does. And the church knows that he has credibility. Number one, he's a firsthand witness. What he speaks about Jesus is what he saw and experienced from him. It's not what someone told him, though that's valuable. What other people tell us about Jesus is incredibly valuable. But Peter is a firsthand witness. Secondly, Peter is suffering for the gospel. He is suffering for the sake of the gospel. Thirdly, that he is persevering in the faith through that suffering. It hasn't been easy for Peter and then fourthly, what you and I see in church history testifies to us that Peter is going to be martyred for the gospel. Not only Peter, but his family, his wife, is what church history tells us. Peter ought to be believed when he says, I speak to you that this is the true grace of God. Why true grace? Because Peter knows that there are false gospels that look like Christianity, that smell like hope, but aren't true, aren't real. Like, for instance, here's an anti-gospel that Peter preaches against. is this, that God doesn't call us to walk through suffering. Why would a good God ever want us to suffer? And God promises easier things. You're just following the, the wrong preachers or the wrong Bible, right? But no, Satan, Satan promised Jesus an easier way when he came to establish his kingdom. And what did Jesus say? I can't trust your words, but my Father's words are trustworthy. I will live on them, and I will die on them. Or secondly, um, that, that um, the reason you suffer is because of your personal sin. 
That's not the life of faith, but you're obviously on some dark path if you're suffering or walking through hardship. No, not at all. You look at the story of Job. We suffer because of brokenness in the world, but suffering can be a part of God's grace, a refining, that we might know him more deeply, love him more affectionately, And if everything was just easy, then we wouldn't have those experiences that grow our roots down deep and establish us in the faith. Root yourselves in God's grace. Okay, so root yourselves in God's grace. I gave an example of a tree stump, right? What's the role? Okay, even though a tree stump is not a very inspiring picture, right? It's probably a problem if it's in your yard. But I want you to think about this, the roots the roots of a tree. I, I've, got, I've got trees in my yard that I could, I own a chainsaw. <laughs> my wife doesn't really like that we own a chainsaw, but I can go out to my garage, fire up that chainsaw, and I could probably cut down every tree in our yard in 10 minutes. Okay, I could make quick work of it. No, no, don't be offended by that. Don't be offended. I'm just saying, how easy is it to cut down the above ground part of a tree or a bush? Think about that, right? But think about how hard it is to dig up the roots, to get to the root of something, to pull that out. It's much harder, isn't it? That's why Peter, talking to people who are going to walk through suffering, says, you need to root yourselves, be confident in this grace, God's grace. This is how I'm going to explain this. That you and I would rather be a stump an uninspiring, an inglorious picture. A stump doesn't produce fruit, fruit doesn't have, tr- doesn't have uh, branches that produce shade, and yet has roots that you and I would rather be a stump that is rooted in Jesus than a tree that is flourishing anywhere else. That that is the Christian life. That, that things will get refined and cut back, but the one thing that matters is that we are established in Jesus that we continue taking steps in Jesus, that our life is influenced and shaped and given life by his grace. There are two ways that I think about this, two errors that we can fall into. Peter talks about doctrine, like the truth about God that he's revealed about himself and his holiness and the story of Jesus being truly righteous and yet willing to die for the unrighteous. Some big doctrinal statements that Peter brings up. So we've got doctrine, the story of Jesus, but then we've also got a call for a changed life that will be different. Our actions, our behavior, two things. And there are two errors that we can can embrace. And the one is this, to be unrooted theologically in emotional faith. It's going great when our emotions are at a peak and we're desperate and the victim of our emotions when we walk through the valley and unrooted that God is the same yesterday and today, that we know who he is and unrooted in theology. The second error is this, an unrefined character, that we know we've got great theology and it looks like our roots go down deep, but it is knowledge only. Meaning that the, the holiness of God the trustworthiness of God 
his grace to love, his humility for Jesus to come down in the flesh does not shape how we live our life. That we go about with arrogance or not a care for someone else. Unrooted theology or unrefined character. Peter talks about both of those. So I want to summarize real quick this gracious life in this one word, that God's grace shapes a holy people more than their circumstances. God's grace shapes us more than our circumstances. It shapes what we believe about him and our character. That that's the grace that Peter wants these listeners to hear and be established in. And secondly, it'd be this, that humility, when we're called to suffer, when we're called to give up, when we're called to come down a few notches or rungs or whatever it is for you, that that can lead to our sanctification and be a demonstration of glory to God. Now, we've made a few changes in kids' ministry. I think one of them really illustrates this point. In children's ministry, in particular, we believe that God has called us to two things, and that's going to shape how we go about ministry. Number one is dependency on Him. I, I don't know about you, but I've gone about ministry <laughs> in ways where it doesn't depend on God. And, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, we believe that as kids' ministry or any ministry grows here, that God will supply the people to serve in them. And so what do we do? We pray and we ask God, would you please provide the teachers for fourth and fifth grade? We don't have a 100% guarantee this is going to work. It'll be supplied. We, we don't get that, but we are going to pray and ask because we believe that this is a good thing. We believe this is what God desires, but we're going to depend on him for it. that we're not getting volunteers because of anything else other than God is going to provide them. And a second is this, that we believe God's called us to faithfulness. And so that means that we are going to ask, we're going to ask people to pray about serving in that ministry, but we're not going to guilt trip anybody or make anyone feel bad for not participating. No, not at all. Do you know how re relieving doing ministry this kind of way, depending on God and, and understanding, clarifying what is faithfulness in this situation? So here's the question. You know, has God called Kyle, who's overseeing the, the September kids' ministry calendar, to make sure that there's someone every Sunday? And, and if there's not, that Kyle had better be sweating. No, no. Just that we pray and ask God, that we faithfully ask, and the result's up to him. And I know nobody wants this. I'm not saying this, this isn't a threat, but what I'm saying is we are more committed to God's will than to kids not being in the service. And if there comes a week where we got to have one class or another in this service, then that's what we're going to do, because what we will not do is overextend people. We believe that depending on God means that we're only going to ask people to serve once a month in these ministries. And when people start pulling double duty, 
because there's a gap. And it's just easy to ask people that are already serving the ministry. And then when there's another gap that's triple duty, that's a problem. That's a real problem. We're going to depend on God. And if that means kids are in the service, then Gabe gets to live with that, all right? So, and we're okay with that, and I'm okay with that. We would rather be committed to God's will than to ask someone to overextend themselves because we want people to walk in loving union with Jesus, be rooted and established in him. And we don't want to abuse people who volunteer, are willing to give and care and love kids by asking them to pull double duty or triple duty. That's what we're committed to. That's what we're committed to. God's grace shapes how we do this. Now, here's a question that I think is really important. Who gets the glory when we pray and ask for volunteers? And, and then the kids' ministry calendar is full of volunteers. Who gets the glory for that? God does. Okay, so let's think about it the other way. If Gabe just asked his wife to fill in those gaps, or anyone, then that person gets the glory for that. They were willing to make that sacrifice. And that's great. We think there's a different way, a different way. One that relies on God's grace. We expect that he's gonna treat us better than we deserve. Now, how do we stay on this hill? What is our future? How do we stay established in grace? The word of God does the work of God to create and sustain the people of God. Not original with me. I've heard that and loved it. What's the future of this church? It's what Peter's written. It's the words of grace. It's not a pastor. It's not a rockin' ministry, student, kids, community groups. It's the word of God doing a work in our hearts. That's what it is, and that's why it's so important that we don't move on from grace, that we don't get moved off this, this mountain of grace, but that we're established, that our roots go down deep. Because that's when we know we're loved, and what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that my grace is sufficient. We say, no matter what's ahead, I know God is gracious. I know he's gracious. I'm, I'm betting my future on that God is gracious. So Peter closes with these words. Listen to this. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. It's interesting right here. We bring up a few other characters. It's, a, it's the end. And if you look back to the beginning of Peter, we get this picture of exile. There was a city called Babylon. There was a great empire, actually. And the Israelites were exiled and under the power and authority of this pagan empire. Peter is at Rome, and he is using a metaphor here. He's saying, we're in exile. <laughs> and here's some greetings from the Christians in Rome, in Babylon. And what's the picture here? We're not home, Christians. We're not home. We are journeying with God. He's been gracious to us, but it's been hard because we are not home. We're not at the end yet perseverance required. And he brings up John Mark. Who's John Mark? He's a well-known leader. He wrote the gospel of Jesus according to Mark. He's also a first-hand witness to the new church growing. In fact, they met at his mother's house. Uh, Peter sees John Mark as what? What does he say right here? A son. 
a son. And he's not literally his son. But in the family of Christ, Peter, in this inner generation, embraces John Mark and his ministry as, this is my son. My son, I love him. Now, the reason why why Peter goes into this greeting here, I want you to express love to one another because that reflects the family of God. Right here, when, when Peter says, she, she who is at Babylon with Peter, some people think they're talking about Peter's wife, and that's not true. Peter is talking about the church, she, the bride of Christ. He wants to give them encouragement that the church from over there in Rome is sending their greetings. And what's the expectation? That I want you to have that same kind of culture. Okay, now the kiss of love. This is great. Um, anybody here been kissed in church by someone not in your family? Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks for sharing. Suzanne, no one was supposed to raise their hand, but great. Okay, so, so here's the thing. This is amazing because here's a cultural issue. This isn't a part of our culture, Right? Um, um, I have. In fact, some of you were there for the conversation. We were talking about different cultures with the Sudanese church plant that uh, meets here in the afternoon. And what did someone come up and do? They just came right up here and gave me a Sudanese greeting, which is a double kiss, both cheeks, right? And I was super embarrassed. Why? Because that's not my culture. That's not mine. But what is appropriate? How do you express love How do you say to someone that's in your church family, I'm glad you're here, you belong? It is a physical touch, a handshake, an appropriate hug. But what Peter is talking about, this kiss of love, is something that starts in the heart. That you know, I'm going to walk in, I'm going to express love and warmth. I want people to know that I enjoy that they're here, that I'm thankful to God They're a part of my church family. That's Peter's vision right here. And then he ends with peace to all those who belong to Jesus, who are bonded together. Closes with that benediction of peace. Two applications real quick. I'm going to be really brief. The first is this. When we are called to entrust ourselves to God in suffering, here's what Peter anticipates. That through the fiery trials, you and I will have a compassionate care for each other. And you and I will have a compassionate care for each other because secondly, the world is watching and they want to see how you respond to Jesus rooted and established in him. God, I pray that you would help us right now. Help us to think about our roots in Jesus. God, help us to think about any arrogance in our hearts where we're living or leading or without you, not being established in you. God, I pray that you would give us care and compassion. It's based on who you are, what you've done for us that we would want to reflect Jesus' care, Jesus' commitment, and Jesus' obedience to you, Father. God, I pray that you would make us a bold witness in the sense that we're so rooted in Jesus 
that it's non-ignorable when, when people rub shoulders with us and see our life. God, that they would get to see and hear the picture, the story of what your son has done for your church. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.